Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're looking at Cameroon. We're going to talk about the separatist insurgency in the west of the country, the Anglophone areas that's been grinding on now for almost five years. Government forces have been fighting for almost five years now. Violence that has pushed more than 760,000 people to flee from their homes. But the Cameroon army has been accused of committing serious human rights abuses against the local population. Allegations it has repeatedly denied. The insurgency started after many Anglophone lawyers, teachers, and students took to the streets in 2016, angry at the use of French in courtrooms and schools. The government cracked down violently. Over subsequent months, separatist militias stepped up their fight for a new state, Ambazonia, crafted from areas known as Southern Cameroons that were administered by the British during the colonial era. Besides attacking Cameroonian security forces, they also targeted civilians and enforced a boycott on children's education. For their part, the Cameroonian security forces stand accused of a litany of abuses and despite killing many separatist fighters, have been unable to contain the insurgency. Dialogue to resolve the conflict between Anglophone separatists and the Francophone government has ended. President Paul Bia granted the English-speaking region special status, but the rebels who boycotted the talks say they want full independence. To the UN Security Council, we have said, we do not want to be the next peacekeeping mission. We don't want to see blue helmets in Cameroon. Several attempts to defuse the crisis diplomatically have failed, in large part because the government for years refused to talk to separatist leaders or offer reforms that would give Anglophone areas greater autonomy. Overall, the conflicts killed several thousand people, forced almost three quarters of a million from their homes and disrupted the lives of millions more, including many children who for years were unable to attend school. We're going to talk about all this with Ari Elvis in Tui, Crisis Group's Cameroon expert who's calling in from the west of the country. 
We're going to talk about prospects for settlement and what that might look like and what Cameroon's foreign partners can do to push in that direction. Harry, welcome on. Thank you, Richard. I'm very pleased to be part of this podcast today to highlight what's going on in Cameroon and possibly to help listeners to think about ways we can get out of the troubles Cameroon is currently facing. So, Ari, why don't you start by sort of just taking us through what the fighting actually looks like now? I understand there's sort of been an escalation over this past year. Uh, Richard, what we can see on the ground is that the profile of the conflict has changed from what we witnessed in its first four years or so. Over the course of the year from January to October, where we are now, uh, the, the conflict has changed. There's been a slight reduction in direct attacks on civilians from the separatists, but an, a massive increase in attacks uh, towards the army, towards Cameroon government army positions, gendarmeries, police patrols, uh, B rapid intervention battalion patrols in the Anglophone uh, regions, which has increased uh, the casualties, uh, some of the suffering that the soldiers have faced in that area, which they have not been used to facing in the previous phases of the of the conflict. The army has made some progress uh, over the years uh, fighting with the separatists. Um, they were able to go and destroy some of the separatists' uh, camp. Uh, unfortunately for them, this is a very broad territory uh, that we are looking at here. This is about 40,000 uh, square kilometers. And the separatists have simply moved some of their camps deeper in the forest. And with the difficulty of access to the Anglophone regions, it's harder and harder for the army to be able to get to where these separatists are located. And separatists sometimes just simply return to town and mingle with the ordinary uh, uh, population and are able to carry on guerrilla attacks on the army. So even the progress that the army has made, especially in parts of 2019 and 2020, have not been sustainable. And we find ourselves in a situation where the separatists have increased their firepower. They move from uh, very basic uh, elements of fighting to now using assault rifles, to now placing IEDs, and to now also using uh, rocket-propelled grenades against the army, which is increasingly stretched. Uh, and this is starting to worry the entire Cameroonian public. Even those who believed that the army in the beginning were able to crack down on these armed separatists are now wondering openly on state media, on private television, that perhaps it is time to draw down on the military approach to this conflict. And Ari, can you tell us a bit about the separatists? Who are they and how did they come to the point where they are demanding seceding from Cameroon itself? Now, for those who don't know, Cameroon is actually made up of two large communities based on its uh, colonial past. You've got on one part the Francophones who make up 80% of the country and during the colonial era were administered by France. And then 20% of the country was administered by the United Kingdom. These 20% of people are now referred to as Anglophones. So the separatists are Anglophones and they are based in the Northwest and Southwest regions which these regions formerly made up the British Southern Cameroons. And Ari, did this begin as a fight for independence in, in terms of kind of resentment for these arbitrary colonial boundaries? Or has it emerged as one as the demands of the Anglophones have been denied by the central government? 
Actually, for close to, to six decades, Anglophones have been complaining about their marginalization under the Francophone-led uh, government in Yaoundé. But for until 2017, there was no armed violence, uh, really, until this protest f- calling for uh, for more Anglophone rights. First, it started with uh, civil society leaders, uh, teachers, trade unions, uh, lawyers, trade unions, lawyers of the common law tradition, uh, which is mostly uh, observed in the Northwest and Southwest Anglophone regions. These were peaceful uh, demonstrations. And uh, these people now turned to armed violence when the government's forces uh, brutally cracked down on this uh, protest and then they embraced arms. But it's all started from peaceful protests which were not well handled by the government and which has now boiled over to radicalize many Anglophones who have taken up arms and have embraced the separatist struggle. So, Ari, we'll come back in a moment to the way the government responded and and why. But could you just say a word or two more about the rebels, the separatists' tactics? So, Right now, this year, as you described, they seem to be mostly targeting the Cameroonian security forces. But that hasn't always been the case in the past, right? I mean, they've also cracked down on other Anglophones, for example, that that weren't supportive enough of separatism. They've uh, enforced school boycotts that we talked about up top, which denied many children the opportunity to go to school for some years. So could you say a word or two about, about those tactics? And and why do you think the separatists have sort of shifted away from them, if, if indeed they have? Uh, Richard, what, what we can see as some of the elements in the toolbox the Anglophone separatists are using in, in Cameroon uh, in their struggle with the central government uh, has included uh, violence against other Anglophones uh, on whom they have been trying to impose uh, their policies. Uh, they, they, they have uh, blocked schools uh, for a while, but thankfully they have turned their back mostly on the school boycott, so many schools have resumed, although enrollments are far from what they used to be. Um, they, they have targeted Anglophones, uh, they have kidnapped several people uh, to get ransoms to fund the armed struggle, but also just to punish people for either siding with the, with the, with the central government in Yaoundé or not supporting the, the separatist cause. Um, they've also used a lot of uh, propaganda on social media. Uh, actually, when the separatists, before they even started an armed struggle, it was more about social media activism. Uh, that has reduced uh, a bit. So some of the tools they've used um, include uh, the ghost towns and, and lockdowns. Many Anglophones are familiar with ghost towns and school closures, school boycotts, having already used these tactics in the 1990s to pressure the government for a return to multi-party politics. It's basically the same strategy which the separatists inherited from the civil society leaders, lawyers, and teachers, union leaders in 2016. And they simply carried that on uh, into 2017 when we now descended into armed conflict and started enforcing that using some of their own violent methods. Lockdowns are a stronger, uh, a more extreme version of ghost towns because it involves them trying to block off entry and exit into the two Anglophone regions. Uh, The impact of this is uh, uh, significant in terms of the economic uh, downfall, uh, in terms of even just uh, health and seeking public services 
for the people, but also it affects the uh, economies of the Anglo-Francophone regions, which are close to the Anglophone areas, because during lockdowns, uh, activities in those regions also grind down very slowly. And Ari, why do you think that the separatists have sort of moved on from the, the boycott of the schools? It's not because they've been given any concessions by the government, right? So it's more because of pressure from Anglophones themselves? You, you're right, uh, Richard. There's been ongoing very strong debates amongst Anglophones uh, themselves. The first year of the school boycotts, that's 2016-2017, uh, was purely vo- voluntary. Uh, there were no, no weapons there was no, there was very little means by which anybody uh, could enforce it. And actually, at the time, uh, there were very few or non-existent uh, separatists. Uh, it was more about Anglophones who were uh, demanding for a return to the two-state federation obtained at uh, the time of independence. But after that, uh, when the separatists emerged, they continued the policy and they even enforced it using uh, violent methods. And Anglophones started asking themselves questions. For how long were they going to continue denying one whole generation of young people the opportunity to go to school? At one point, uh, UNICEF estimated that about 600 to 700,000 young people were out of school. So at some point, uh, this internal pressure was brought to bear on the separatist leaders, and most of them gradually turned their back on uh, the school boycott. Although they have said schools should go on, they've kept warning that it's dangerous because an armed conflict is also going on. Ari, could you say a little bit about the separatists as an armed movement or coalition? I understand there's there's various different militias that are all fighting. I mean, are they one together, one insurgency, or is it different militias doing different things at different times with, with different goals? Uh, Richard, that's a very good question. Actually, the, the Anglophone uh, separatists, when they rose up, uh, from principally from 2017, uh, they rose up spontaneously as small, small groups of young people who had suffered the repression of the army following pro-independence uh, demonstrations in the Anglophone areas, calling for mostly a, a separate state uh, for the Anglophones in order to ensure that their rights were, were being respected. So it's small groups of individuals in the beginning, uh, young people, which move to small, small groups of militias. But now they are, they are much more organized. Uh, you have separatist militias that count about 200 to 300 armed men. And it's not one body. It's actually small, small uh, militias. They are spread around the Anglophone regions. And these separatist uh, groups, sometimes are actually competing against each other. But from what we've seen recently, there are increasing signs that they are actually uh, cooperating amongst themselves, although they are also politicking in order to place themselves uh, ahead of the rest as the most active, the most vibrant, the most trustworthy group that can fight for the independence as they wish for the uh, former Saudi Cameroons. And Ari, can you tell us a bit about the level of support for the separatists amongst the Anglophone communities? The the perceptions on the ground are varied, but we have uh, some clear strands which have emerged. Uh, Support for separatism on itself is quite high, which explains why this conflict is enduring. But you, you have another group of Anglophones 
who prefer a return to the federal structure of the country, the two states uh, agreed in 1961. You also have a much smaller uh, crop of people who are closer to the institutions in Yangon. They will believe that the government's offer of rapid decentralization, uh, which has been crystallized now in the special status for the Anglophone regions, is actually the answer to the conflict and the crisis. So, Ari, let's come back to the special status that you mentioned when we talk about recent diplomatic efforts. But let me ask first, how do people in Anglophone areas view the violence, which must have been extremely disruptive for their lives and killed many people and, and displaced, as we said at the beginning, almost three quarters of a million? Uh, Richard, this, is, this period has been very painful for many uh, Anglophones. Um, it's, 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 it's very clear that the majority of the victims of this conflict are rather anglophones uh, and not even uh, the government whom the separatists uh, claim to be to be fighting uh, against. Uh, I've spoken to victims of this conflict, uh, some of them who are living as, as, as IDPs, uh, internal displaced persons in the littoral regions uh, as far away as uh, Yaounde in the central region, also in, in the south region around Kribi and within the anglophone regions themselves in Limbe, uh, in Kumba, in, in Bermenda, where people have, have gathered because of uh, the violence, uh, some of which has been meted out by the separatists. A good part of it has been meted out by Cameroon uh, government forces, but the separatists uh, have brought a lot of the, their violence, especially in 2020, 2019, and 2018. And so people are suffering and people are, are angry about this uh, sort of, of violence, but which has contributed, again, a great deal to many people uh, viewing the objective of achieving suppression slightly differently from that of the main tactic of using uh, violence to achieve this, because the Anglophones are the ones who are paying the high price to this violence. Many of their children are out of school, women uh, and, and, and girls are at displaced and are suffering increasing uh, sexual violence from some of the conflict parties. Ari, you talked earlier about some of the army's struggles against the separatists, their struggles to, to defeat the insurgency and the increasing cost this is exacting on the security forces with the separatists now using IEDs, rocket-propelled grenades. Could you say something about morale in the Cameroonian army? Now, actually, the institutions of Cameroon, like the army, for example, uh, you do have... Uh, Anglophones and you do have Francophones uh, in the army, uh, but lately uh, there appears to have been uh, significant uh, Francophone army casualties uh, in in the conflict. Uh, the, the army is uh, facing uh, a very difficult uh, period. Uh, you know that the Cameroon is also involved in in the far north or uh, in the counter insurgency against jihadist uh, groups there. Uh, but in in the Anglophone regions, uh, the army has. Uh, suffered a bit in, in its own recruitment uh, of Anglophones because of the disruptions created by the conflict, because of the fear uh, the separatists uh, have put around uh, their own campaigns, uh, discouraging Anglophones from joining the army. It's been a bit hard for the army to recruit soldiers uh, over the past three, four years from the Anglophone regions, which then actually uh, furthers the problem uh, because it now creates a situation where there are comparatively a larger number of Francophones in the army than Anglophones. And then in terms of deployment, you now see 
clearly that on the ground it appears from what many people are, are saying that there are more uh, francophone soldiers on the ground um, many of them like, like the commanders do express themselves in english uh, which helps and are trying to promote uh, what the Cameroon government calls uh, civil military cooperation to try to build any trust from the from the local people to help them to fish out uh, the separatists. But obviously, that has its limits. And not having enough Anglophones amongst its ranks uh, is also a, a downside. Now, for the army itself, in terms of morale, um, we've not directly heard from soldiers. It's not the role for soldiers to express themselves on thorny political issues like these. But we've seen the reactions of the families of uh, some of these soldiers who have been killed in some of the violent uh, attacks which have taken place in the, in the regions. Uh, last month, uh, one of the funerals or in, in Yaoundé, uh, or around Yaoundé, basically turned into a spontaneous uh, protest uh, against the war. Uh, in another one, uh, the priest was actually saying uh, the record mass for one of the soldiers killed, one of the Francophone soldiers killed uh, in the Anglophone regions, uh, actually begged that they should transmit messages, the, the army's hierarchy should transmit messages uh, to the government, to the President of the Republic, uh, that it's time to try to reduce the violence and basically just end the war. And there have been several attempts at dialogue between the government and the Anglophones, but those seem to have done little to reduce the violence. Can you tell us about these dialogues and your sense of why they have failed? Uh, first, we can go as far back as the time when everything was much more peaceful, when it involved just civil society leaders of the Anglophone uh, community. The government started dialogue with, with teachers, uh, that did not go to the end because the teachers wanted as a guarantee that there will be a return to the federal structure uh, of, of, the, of the country. And that marked a step change because after that, the government started pursuing uh, a policy of cracking down on the Anglophone leaders uh, and the peaceful uh, protest. Then we had the, uh, what the government calls its major national dialogue, which held from 30th September to the 4th of October in 2019, following a lot of pressure from uh, international partners of Cameroon and also internally from the Cameroonian public. Now, the problem with that particular dialogue, the regional national dialogue, is that it sidelined the Anglophone uh, separatist leaders, who are the main protagonists uh, on the other side facing uh, the government. So it arrived at some proposals uh, some of which the government is trying to implement. But as we've seen over the past two years, these have not been sufficient uh, to stem the, the violence. And then apart from that, there was also an attempt by the, a minister in charge of intelligence in Cameroon government's ranks uh, who got in touch with the separatist leaders incarcerated in, in Yaoundé, that's Sisiku Ayuk uh, Tabe and his team, uh, and started some form of uh, discussions to try to lay a groundwork for what many expected would be uh, a ceasefire following the call of the UN Secretary General for a general COVID-19 uh, ceasefire. But a certain wing of government, which prioritizes a military crackdown, did not like that overture to the uh, Anglophone separatists or Ambazonia leaders and punctured the move. And so from then, we've been on a standstill. Even the Swiss initiative 
which the Americans, the British, uh, had come out to publicly uh, uh, lend in their, their support as, as kind of stalled uh, without uh, any movement. After the Swiss had managed at least to organize about 12 uh, Anglophone leaders, uh, mostly living abroad, uh, to prepare them for dialogue with the Cameroonian authorities. And these, sorry, the, Ari, these were separatist leaders or they were other Anglophone leaders? No, these were just the separatist leaders. Uh, many of them are based in, in North America, uh, mostly in the USA. Uh, some, some of them are, are, are in Europe, but most of them are in, in the United States of America. There are about uh, 12 of them uh, there. So one of the ideas that came out of the national dialogue was that Anglophone areas would have so-called special status. Could you say a bit about what that actually entails? One of the principal outcomes of Cameroon's major national dialogue uh, that ended on 4th October 2019 is a proposal for the Northwest and Southwest regions to be granted a special status. Uh, that was quickly done, signed into law by the head of state. Now, proponents of the special status uh, praise it as an, in- as an increase in the autonomy of the Anglophone regions. But its critics, while in slightly larger numbers, uh, tend to think it's very superficial and it, it, is, it just simply involves uh, very little coming in very late. In terms of the content of the special status itself, it simply grants the Northwest and the Southwest regions uh, regional assemblies. But presumably this is a long way away from what the separatists or even many other Anglophones who stop short of separatism, presumably this is a long way from what they would accept. Yeah, exactly, Richard. Uh, Many critics say that it's uh, too little, uh, too late. It doesn't go far enough. Actually, the law says that the regional assembly may be consulted, that the regional assembly may be consulted on matters regarding education in the Anglophone regions. So that's even optional. And it appears it's a bit more symbolic and more protocolar than practical. It's not clear how much budget they are going to manage, uh, for example. And for the common man in the street, apart from the new positions offered by the regional assembly in terms of representation, it's made up of uh, 90 members. For the common man, it's very hard for them to see any real autonomy emanating from this body. So that's why it's been hard for Anglophones in general to agree that the special status afforded them by the new regulation is sufficient for them to give up their struggles for greater autonomy. And all right, Crisis Group has a forthcoming report on the role of women in this conflict and in the separatist struggle. Can you tell us a bit about your sense of what's missing from the conversation regarding the role of women and why does it matter? The uh, first, we Cameroon is a very male-centric uh, country, a society. Uh, you can see it in the behavior of ordinary Cameroonians, uh, but you can also see it in, in government uh, policy, actually. Now, if you look back at the 2019 dialogue, uh, very clearly, gender was not part of the discussion. There was no women's group uh, which the government invited to the dialogue. Uh, there was no gender team, for example. Uh, I spoke to, I think, two individuals, uh, women who had been campaigning for peace uh, to return in the Anglophone areas, 
we only managed to get to the dialogue uh, grounds because we were able to borrow badges and just uh, get crash uh, the place. So uh, women are not being considered in this uh, conflict. And that's frankly disappointing because they are key influencers in the whole Anglophone uh, constituency. Uh, many people are taking part uh, in the, the conflict uh, based on what women have told them of the, the separatists, because these are just uh, young people, many of them uh, school uh, leavers, and, and, and uh, some of them are just uh, husbands of, of these women. Women have a role, and if you go to the uh, DDR centers, where some of the people, some of the fighters have surrendered, you can find a, a few women there who have been involved with the separatists uh, fighting on the ground. But what obtains generally in Cameroon is that this uh, participation of women is not fully accounted for. But that has started to change because there's been some sort of uh, uh, national movement uh, to recognize the contribution of women in, in peace-building processes. And uh, some actors are trying to highlight uh, the role that women are playing uh, in the conflict in the Anglophone regions. But it's far from reflecting the reality on the ground so far. So, I mean, it's such an interesting report. Uh, people who are listening can check it out on our website in, in, in a few weeks. But it, it looks not only at women's roles in the insurgency itself, but it also looks at how women have played increasingly prominent roles in raising their voices against both the Anglophone insurgents, the separatists, for some of their abuses of civilians, for their closures of schools, but also against the, the, the government. Do you want to say a word or two about that as well? We have a, a good number of women who are active uh, campaigners for return of peace uh, in the Anglophone regions. But Richard, I can take you far back to 2016 and 2017. Even in the pro-independence march past, women actually marked their participation by organizing uh, their own protest within uh, the protest. So uh, women are participating. And then after that, when the violence broke out and basically went out of control on the ground, most of the people who spoke out were women in, in grassroots uh, associations, uh, but also young women who had formed uh, non-governmental organizations. Uh, they are campaigning and trying to raise uh, awareness on the, on, the, on the downsides of this uh, conflict. Uh, calling on the authorities, uh, encouraging, trying to push the authorities uh, to approach uh, a more inclusive uh, dialogue, but also pressuring the separatists to reduce their violence uh, on women, on the general public, uh, and also to stop the school uh, boycott. So, Ari, you talked about some of the factions in the government who are very opposed to dialogue, that are very vested in the military strategy. If you look back over the response of the government over the past few years and how President Paul Bia, how he's responded, it's almost a textbook case of what not to do when you have protests in an area, you know, geographically based minority. You crack down and you fuel separatist sentiment. But why do you think... President Bia has been so uncompromising, so opposed to giving people in Anglophone areas greater concessions? I think there are a number of things that we can look at uh, to inform us about 
the posture that the, the position that the government has taken in this crisis. First, I think the the, the strategist on the side of the government, well, it was hard to see how an unarmed anglophone public, just ordinary citizens, were going to stand up uh, to to the army. No one, even in the anglophone community, had ever imagined that anglophones could one day rise up and pick up guns uh, against uh, the government in in Yaoundé. So it, w- it was an easy call to make uh, for those who support the, the military uh, crackdown. That okay, if they repressed, uh, pushed down on the people uh, a bit, it was possible to quell uh, this protest without further ado. Uh, that that was a shocker that it it, it didn't work. And uh, perhaps further studies uh, need to be made to understand fully why uh, the the government's soldiers, sometimes using special forces, were not able to contain the Anglophone uprising. Now, the, the second point is a bit uh, maybe political, but also sentimental uh, for President Bia. Uh, he's been at the top of the country at, or has actually held uh, some of the top three uh, key positions in the country uh, as far back as 1967, uh, when he was uh, a director of a civil cabinet at the presidency, a very powerful uh, ministerial position, and also Secretary General at the Presidency. And then in 1975, he became a Prime Minister uh, with the right to, to succeed the, uh, the former President, which happened in 1982. So actually, you have about half a century for which uh, President Bia has known the country sim- simply as one unit. He's always viewed his legacy as one of being able to fully unite Cameroonians. And so for him, that's his pet baby. And to see the separatists now threatening that project, a project of a lifetime, it's very hard for the president to accept that. And so from the onset, his approach had been, uh, he's not going to deny himself everything he's worked for, for the past 50 years. He's going to do everything possible to keep the country as one. I think those are the two key elements which have informed Cameroon's stance in trying to deal with the anglophone separatists. Ari, that's so fascinating. Could I ask you to tell us a bit about how the conflict is impacting people's lives in Yaoundé? Uh, is there frustration with the BIA or, or with the separatists for, for being seen as having caused this violence in the first place? At the start of this conflict, unfortunately, many Cameroonians did not feel that they were connected to the crisis in the anglophone regions. Uh, in the first year and the second year, it was something that people were just watching on social media, uh, mainly because the government had also cracked down on on, on uh, traditional media companies not to run in information uh, regarding the, the crisis. So people viewed it from, from a distance, especially the people in, in Yaoundé. But as the crisis wore on and we had the major national dialogue in 2019, it started dawning on on even francophones were distant in Yaoundé that this is something that is of critical importance to the entire country. And then very soon they started getting information about their neighbors, uh, anglophones uh, mostly, but also francophones, were directly suffering the impact of the conflict economically. Many businesses shut down in the region. Many uh, companies were not able to send in their products manufactured in the francophone areas into the uh, Anglophone areas. Uh, Breweries suffered uh, greatly. 
uh, and a lot of contraband was rather coming in through the border uh, with Nigeria. So the economic impact uh, started creeping in. And then as from 2020, much of 2020, and mostly in 2021, people have now started seeing an increasing number of, of funerals of soldiers who have unfortunately died in this conflict. And that closeness uh, to the conflict in, in the Anglophone regions has finally dawned on many Cameroonians. People are angry, both with the separatists initially, but now increasingly disappointed with the government's approach of pursuing uh, a crackdown, military crackdown for five years, which is not able to control the situation and bring normalcy in those regions. So the anger is shared uh, uh, amongst the, the, the two protagonists of the war. And many Cameroonians would just simply like a situation where there can be a frank dialogue to address the conflict in a way that everybody can have their say and for them to have some uh, return uh, to peace. Ari, could I ask you, because it's been in the, the news quite recently, a little bit about the international dimensions of the Anglophone crisis, and in particular this story of sort of contacts between Cameroonian separatists and separatists across the border in Nigeria from the eastern re region, the Biafra region. Is this real? Is this something that Cameroonian and Nigerian governments are worried about? Uh, in April this year, 2021, uh, the, one of the uh, Ambazonia separatist groups called Ambazonia Governing Council announced an alliance with the Nigerian group Indigenous Peoples of, of Biafra uh, the details of that alliance are not fully out, uh, but it's, uh, it's an announcement that was keenly followed in Cameroon and in, in, in southeastern uh, Nigeria. Thereafter, we had uh, September, uh, just last month, where there were deadly separatist attacks on uh, army patrols, uh, destroying, uh, I think, three of their uh, armored uh, patrol vehicles. And after that, the Ministry of Defense uh, issued a release in which uh, it said there had been a paradigm shift in the conflict and that the Anglophone uh, separatists were benefiting from the support of international uh, actors. Uh, many people have taken that to refer to, to those in Biafra. Uh, however, it's hard to tell uh, for now if there's been uh, any uh, significant impact of that alliance on the ground fighting. Uh, at the end of August, as about two months ago, Cameroon and Nigerian government officials, very large delegations, met in Abuja to discuss uh, the threat of these uh, separatist groups coming together. And this is something that they are taking very serious. They've agreed to carry out uh, joint uh, uh, actions. Details of these two are not really clear at, at this stage. Uh, it's more now about uh, information exchange. And Ari, can you tell us what your sense is of what a, a good scenario would look like? What would be an outcome at this point that would be beneficial for the situation? And what role could foreign partners play in pushing for that? Uh, I think first, the, the Cameroonian authorities mainly need to now come to the realization that after five years of violence, uh, what we've seen so far in summary is that the separatists have been able to improve their capacity, uh, partly from weapons that they've seized uh, from the army, and the army is under increasing uh, pressure 
and the Cameroonian public is increasingly impatient, the government needs to bear that in mind. Uh, it needs to understand uh, that as, from the way things are going, uh, it would struggle greatly to be able to, to militarily subjugate the separatists. Now, what needs to happen is the government needs to now go back to its pre-October uh, 2019 dialogue, to that thinking, and just basically expand uh, the sense of the dialogue. The dialogue needs to be inclusive. It needs to be involve directly uh, the separatist uh, leaders. What the government has done is it has tried to reach out with messaging uh, to some of the separatist fighters on the ground. But the limitations of that has been, have been clearly seen by everyone. Uh, it's really not working. Now, for that dialogue to happen, given that there is a significant breakdown in confidence, in trust between the government in Yaoundé and the Anglophone community, it's important for third parties to step in. And this now goes out to the friends of Cameroon, uh, the AU, the UN, maybe France, maybe the UK, uh, Switzerland, Germany, the US, uh, maybe the Vatican, now need to come in with a mediator to help build the groundwork for some level of understanding for the two parties to be able to communicate and to start coming close to a platform whereby they can sit and now negotiate an end uh, to the conflict. These elements uh, have to be there. And in terms of the participants, the government basically knows who to speak to. It has the separatist leaders who are detained in Yaoundé, one of the key factions of the of the Ambazonia separatist movement led by uh, Sisiko Ayutabe. You also have the leaders who are in the diaspora. And then you have also some influential Anglophones uh, within the country itself who are not able to freely express themselves because it's very dangerous to let your political opinions be known. So there's clear responsibility for the international community to try to help the Cameroonian parties to come to the table. Without that, we would struggle to get these people to communicate. And Ari, maybe if I could just end on one follow-up to that. Um, what would be some of the, the concrete steps that, let's say, that the African Union, the UN, the US Europeans, what would be some of the concrete steps they could take to, to push in that direction, to push toward a more credible dialogue? What's been lacking from what I've seen and spoken to so many interlocutors on the side of the government, also the separatists and the international community, is uh, there isn't sufficient uh, resources dedicated to resolving this particular conflict, uh, for example. That's where the international community needs to come in. Uh, if a country, or say the United Nations, or the AU, for example, had a special envoy, could negotiate a special envoy, who dedicates time specifically to help the Cameroonian parties to sort out their differences and come to the table, then we have, we have made a very big step. Because now nobody is specifically talking to the parties. It, it's hard to get anything going. It's a situation where every party is just waiting. That needs to happen. And then they need now to now draw up the framework after consulting the parties in the conflict and the Anglophone uh, community uh, to find a framework for bringing people onto a, a table. Ari, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much. Richard, Ari provided us with so much perspective and information on this complicated situation in Cameroon. 
I wonder what is your sense of how to even approach the idea of a dialogue or an effort to establish peace when you have so many different dynamics going on at the same time? Yeah, no, it was it was so interesting. Uh, a lot of what Ari said, but but I want to pick up on what he said about President Bia and this sort of determination that the president has to sort of, in his eyes, keep the country together. And of course, the paradox is that much of what he's doing in the twilight of what's been a very, very long term in office is actually doing the opposite. It's actually pulling it apart. And, it, you know, it's not just the, the Anglophone crisis. We didn't talk about it during the, the discussion, but ethnic polarization elsewhere is also on the rise. And in part, that's due to Beer's determination to hold on to power. It's not just that, but that, that is part of it. And Cameroon hasn't traditionally been a country where there's been a lot of ethnic uh, hatred. So I think generally there's quite a lot to worry about with the country as, as Beer approaches the, the, you know, what looks likely to be the end of his tenure. On the Anglophone crisis, I think our sense is that it's not too late to reach some sort of compromise now exactly what that looks like. It's going to have to be determined in talks. But it obviously has to be something more than the special status that the government has offered so far. And I think our sense is that if the government was prepared to go further to to offer a greater degree of self-rule to the Anglophone areas, enough Anglophone leaders, including some separatist leaders, would go for that. and, And that would at least take some of the sting out of the insurgency. Now, of course, it's hard to know until you try. And there's always this fear with devolution with giving greater autonomy that you end up fueling separatism. But right now it's the opposite, that by refusing to offer greater autonomy, as Ari laid out, the government's actually driving more Anglophones to support uh, separatism. So I think from our perspective, it's critical that a conflict that's now approaching its five-year mark and that is largely forgotten, that the Anglophone conflict in Cameroon gets more of the world's attention and that those with more influence try to get the government and separatists together with other Anglophones into more meaningful talks. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including on Cameroon, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producer, Sam Mednick. And thank you, of course, to all our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or review. And we hope you'll join us again next week. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 